0: Hello and welcome to the Sala Podcast. This episode is a live recording of Art Speak, which is a series of talks run by the Adelaide Central School of Art that have been recorded in collaboration with Sala Festival.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is the traditional land of the Ghana people, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We're very fortunate today to be joined by Catherine Truman. Catherine's an internationally recognized practice examines the intersections between artistic process and scientific method and is characterized by an impressive material versatility, incorporating contemporary jewelry, objects, digital image and film installation. In 2016, Catherine was selected as the Sala feature artist and enjoyed a major survey exhibition at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And in 2017, she also presented a major solo show at the Jam Factory, which subsequently toured nationally. Catherine is a founding and ongoing member of the Grey Street Workshop and has enjoyed residencies at the Autonomic Neurotransmission Laboratory, the Anatomy and Histology Department of the Ian Gibbons Microscopy Suite at Flinders University. And more recently, she was a visiting scholar at the Flinders Centre for Ophthalmology, Eye and Vision Research, School of Medicine, Flinders University, and an artisan resident at the State Herbarium and Botanic Gardens of South Australia. Catherine is currently the artisan resident at Carrick Hill. Can you please make Catherine feel very welcome today? Catherine, I was really interested in talking to you about the work that arose from your engagement in the ophthalmic imaging unit at Flinders University. There's a wonderful confluence of this project, one that a lot of your work seems to deal with between tact- tactility and visuality. Your practice seems to me like a way of understanding through the hands complicated invisible images that are only revealed through artistic representation or scientific imaging. What draws you to these places of science and medicine as sources for inspiration?
0: Good question, Andrew. (laughs) Um, But firstly, thank you very much for the invitation to be able to um, talk about my work uh, at this level. It's really um, a great opportunity. Um, And I'd also like to acknowledge um, that we're we're meeting here today on uh, Ghana lands, unceded lands um it's it's a fascinating thing to um, be an artist uh, in a science environment, and um, I think uh, what what draws me to that um, way of being in my arts practice is a certain level of curiosity um, and uh, it's always been that way in fact, even before I was an artist as a child, I was <laughs> completely um, taken with trying to find out how nature ticked. In fact, I remember the other day that my parents gave me a microscope when I was quite young. Um, so I've always had a real interest uh, in in looking deeper into um, the natural world um, but also um, trying to understand, I guess, um, a different way of thinking. Uh, so working... Uh, across disciplines is is also uh, an attraction for me, yeah.
1: What What is the reception in those spaces? Is it a reciprocal conversation? You approach it with a sense of curiosity. Are the, are the scientists and the researchers that you work with similarly intrigued by what you do?
0: Um, they are. They're uh, usually completely confused. <laughs> in fact, it's usually neutral to start with. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've been doing it for so many years now that, that I uh, have the benefit of hindsight uh, as to what the process usually is. And there is a pattern that, that gets followed. Um, and it's usually one where, based on complete uncertainty, <laughs> not only uncertainty about the subject matter that we're both interested in, but uncertainty about each other and the processes and i've I've always found it really useful to to pull right back um, in the first instance and it, like they it's they're interesting opportunities, but they're opportunities that I pursue um I don't kind of I haven't really fallen into them um i've the the first um residency I did I was invited to go up to Darwin actually to work at the museum and art gallery up there and um it was 1995 so it was a very long time ago (laughs) were you born there oh absolutely (laughs) and
1: uh... I was born in the 70s (laughs)
0: But you know, it does feel like eons ago, and I really didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I was invited to go there because at, at, at that stage I really was very interested in anatomy, and I'd started to pursue uh, uh, research into the history of anatomy because I realised that um, you know that there was it was so nuanced this scientific rule mm-hmm. <laughs> thing called scientific rule and. Um, Particularly when when you think about anatomical knowledge and, and where that's come from, uh, and I began to realise that everything was completely nuanced with with uh, idiosyncrasies of of the people who were researching and who were representing their subject matter, whether they be scientists or artists. And that's what kind of drew me to um, to science in the first place. Mm. That that kind of search for humanity in what seems like at the face of it cold and clinical is certainly you know not that at all. Um.
1: And the two disciplines I feel used to be a lot closer together thinking about da Vinci's Vitruvian Absolutely. Man and, and some of the material that you were researching early in your career with the anatomical wax models the yeah. the skinless figures that sort of have that sense of the invisibility of the skin to be able to look beneath and see the muscles and the yeah. the nerve endings and so forth and yeah. that really seemed to inform a lot of your uh, it seemed like a pivotal turning point in your in your practice there's started to see the wood carvings that represent that musculature mm-hmm. um, that was dyed with the the uh, the see, the ink from the Shuniku, the Shuniku yeah. ink yeah. that is typically used to make a seal or a signature that's right
0: Yeah, um, all those things um, make sense to me. Um, The the pursuit of of kind of looking for humanity in the human body, (laughs) the way it was represented, like early on. I travelled the world actually looking at collections um, of waxes, in particular, and anatomical models. uh, and have been, you know, to some very interesting collections throughout Europe and England and Asia and America, um, uh, and I've I felt all the time that I was looking for the person behind the the handcrafting of all those models. And uh, in Florence, the La Specola collection of anatomical waxes there was particularly interesting for me. And the curator there was fantastic. She would kind of invite me in and lock the door behind me (laughs) so so that I had all this kind of freedom with this incredible collection and photographed it to within an inch of its life, you know, Trying to, which I do a lot, to try and understand what I'm looking at. I'll often um, be behind a camera uh, so that I can look at different angles later and and remember what I felt at the time. Um, and it's it's that that I'm looking at when I'm looking at those um, forms of representation. In fact, right through to even. Any kind of scientific experiment. I am looking for how is this person thinking when they're doing the experiment? How is this person feeling uh, when they're they're making an anatomical wax that represents something that's not usually seen with the, you know, with naked with the naked eye. Um, and I saw some absolutely extraordinary. Uh, renditions of the human body that were far beyond just the clinical way beyond the clinical in fact incredibly sensual Uh, and um, I guess that's been my pursuit all along Uh, it's it's, the subject matter sometimes almost doesn't matter Mm -hmm. um, because it's really the way we connect um, with the subject and and I guess it's our uh, the level of questioning how people develop a curiosity, how they develop a sense of wonder, what is a sense of wonder. So it's you know I've kind of ended up really in pursuit of of what is the nature of wonder, um, but I'm also interested in 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 natural wonders as well. Mm. But it's the nature of wonder that that really does drive me. Once you get somebody else, once you connect with someone else in an environment that's not yours, that um, like a scientific environment. And there are lots of different kinds of scientific environments, from biomedical, you know, through the research labs, into the more pedagogical side where there, um, you know, it's a teaching kind of um, uh, atmosphere and people are trying to embed very complex information about the same subject matter right through to the clinical side of science where you're dealing with patients. Mm. Um, All throughout, it's a connection with people Mm. and the subject matter follows that. Um, And it just happens to be that the subject matter is so poignant uh, when it's the human body. Mm. It's a, a point of connection for both of us in a relationship like that.
1: Looking at your practice and reviewing it does seem quite fundamental these placements these uh, being an artist in residence being a visiting scholar this connection with other people this connection with other fields seems really fundamental to your inspiration and your sort and your ways of Mm -hmm. making and you mentioned before that idea of pulling back to Start from a position of uncertainty, which to me sounds really connected with that idea of being open to wonder, to yeah. being open to being amazed to something. But you talk about that as you've done so many of these now that you have a sort of a, a pattern or a process by which you go through to successfully make the most of a, a residency replacement. Is there what comes after that sense of uncertainty? What are you looking for <laughs> when you're in that place? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <What> is, <laughs> how, how do you know when you've arrived
1: at, at what you're, what you've, um, not known you were looking for?
0: I don't think there's ever a sense where I felt at a standstill. Hmm. I wish there was sometimes, and um, I think what what happens now is I build in standstills <laughs> <laughs> during my residencies. I I really do. I kind of sometimes I get very overwhelmed with incredible um, layers of information going in every day from all different points of view. Um, You know, history gets written by so many people about the same thing and and sometimes you wonder what's the truth and what isn't. And it's best not to grasp onto anything too tightly when you do a residency, that's for sure. Uh, To to, to be open is, is key and, of course, being human, you have to shut down every now and again. You can't always be open. It's too hard. It's uh, For both um, you and the, the people that you're working with, you have to go away and have a bit of time. And, and that's where I, um, I kind of build in periods of time where I go, OK, enough. You know, Today I'm going to spend today in the studio and I'm going to review all those images that I've taken and see what I can find that I haven't been able to spend time with during the actual residency. And and to just take a breath and and then you realise what you've kind of done up until that point and where the gap is in your research and then you start anew the next day. And that's been incredibly beneficial. Um, It's taken a lot of discipline to do that um, because I'm the type of person that, you know... I want to eat the whole cake at once (laughs) (laughs) you know if it's there I've got to eat it and so much richness happens when you start a residency and when you do a residency but but the other thing is that you're usually on a fairly tight timeline and you're really aware that you have to get as much in as possible and then go off and respond so it's it's like that that is part of the process it's um First of all, you're kind of pulled back, and you're you're gauging where you are and who the people are, and they're doing the same of you. Um, Then you start conversations, and then the exchange begins to happen. Um, And that's that's the the best kind of exchange is when you're you're both curious and you're both generating questions, not necessarily answers, but the whys. You know why you're interested in that or. Why do you think it works like this? Or even wordless exchanges begin to happen. And then, um, you know, then I I kind of become a student. Uh, And I have to. I think when you're in a situation like that, you kind of have to take advantage of all the new information across that discipline and try and understand a bit of it, you know. Not all of it, but a bit of it. Um, which is why I ended up doing the second year medical, um, student course <laughs> about three years running because Quite I, was, amazing. Yeah. I was so interested.
1: Amazing level of research. But <laughs> <to, laughs> so I'd sort of start. start,
0: I'd be writing notes and think, wait a minute, I'm writing about what muscles attach to the scapula, yeah. not what I feel about this, but what, yeah. So there's a danger also of becoming a documenter to the point where all you produce at the end is a document of. Uh, It's like a diary. This is what's here and and this is what people are doing. Rather than a translator or a responder. And I think they're really separate things and they all need their time. Um, So that's why time is important. If you've got a really short deadline for a residency, then you have to insert periods of... um, You have to pause every now and again, even though... You know, in those pauses, you, f- you might feel anxious mm. that you're not, you know, up to the mark. They're always really useful.
1: Moments of reflection.
0: Absolutely. And, uh... oh, with any um, practice, mm. a moment of reflection in the, in the middle. It's what I learned in Japan, actually, when I was learning netsuke carving and, you know, I'd be working with a kind of a living national treasure who was a netsuke <laughs> carver. And um, he would say, Kasarin, you must stop it now." <laughs> you are getting far too involved. Step back, have a drink of water.
1: Wow, so that advice is carried through. <laughs> yes, it's, yes. it's been revisited. me. Yeah, yeah, You've had to me. It's discover it for yourself as well <laughs> in, that, in that process. It, it's really nice talking about that sort of sense of uh, mutual asking of questions. I do see a lot of similarities between that sort of artistic method of discovery through making and a scientific method of having a hypothesis and testing it. Um, but I was really intrigued as well, those sort of chance observations or small observations, the work that you were doing at the Ophthalmic Centre, the observation of the visual similarity between the optic nerves and a root system of a yeah. plant, yeah. Which, which seems quite a... Um, is your knowledge being introduced to that process? That that stepping outside that scientific realm and and, and bringing in that observation of that connection to the yeah. to the natural world.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. It probably is. Um, and we, I mean, necessarily you bring your history into the room, don't you? When you when you're anywhere, and and at uh, at that point of the residency, I. I I was kind of getting to know this um, ophthalmic photographer, and she she was a senior um, photographer and world renowned for her images of eyes, and um, a very interesting person. Hard to get, you know, hard to find the crack to get into to form a relationship. But so I started working with her in two thousand sixteen. And we got to during that year I was observing eye operations um, and talking to a lot of the specialists uh, about their particular area of specialty, but also following a, a patient journey from um from diagnosis right through to post surgery. Um, so and she was giving me insight. The photographer was giving me insight all the way along because she, she's kind of the, the central point that joins all the specialists together mm. because she takes images of all the, of the eyes at different, different points of that journey. So, a fascinating place to be for me. Um,
1: and a wonderful entry point for an artist that oh, sort of totally, taking totally. all of those steps of the process and making them visual, yeah. making them into an yeah. image
0: so we we learned a lot about each other, and at that point, I said, and this is what normally happens too, I said, "Do you think we could muck around with the machinery in your room <laughs> because they don 't get a chance to experiment often you know they 're really kind of on point every day they have to keep up with it and she got to the We got to the place where she would actually lock her door and we would um, make the patients wait while we <laughs> played around with some of the imaging machines and um It was the first time that she had that opportunity, and so we actually made a film together in the end um uh, of of my eye and she um, dilated my pupil and actually um, used a spectralis uh machine that normally does retinal angiograms, so it maps the vascular uh, network of the retina and um and so she, we made this film called uh, Epithelium, which is now, you know, it's been shown in Mexico and you know, all sorts of places. It's been selected um, for short film festivals and stuff. It's probably not a
1: career trajectory that she anticipated. <laughs>
0: it's fabulous fun (laughs) to do that but I also drew in Ian Gibbons who was the first and I still collaborate with Ian he's the neuroscientist who was the head of anatomy up at Flinders who was the first person really that I that I started to really collaborate with he was the head of anatomy a neuroscientist he's an electronic uh, musician he's also a video poet he's now um, an emeritus professor but he edits my films and, and actually has quite a lot of input into the film. So we we collaborated between Angela Chappell, who was the photographer, the ophthalmic photographer, Ian Gibbons, the ex-neuroscientist, Ooh. and myself. And um, what an amazing film it was in the end. It just had all these kind of um, sensibilities that wasn't... It wasn't true science, it wasn't kind of, I don't know what it is. But, yeah, a really but nice intersection. Yeah, it's a real intersection and you really, when I watch it, I remember, I remember Angela getting incredibly excited about, and she started to direct me in the film, um, which at that point I thought, this is heaven. <laughs> <laughs> were you able what to a, take the direct, were they just
1: like eyeball uh, <laughs> level directions?
0: Yeah 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 they kind of were um it like we turned we actually didn't use that we didn't use her speaking and me speaking in the film Ian actually morphed our, our voices and it actually sounds quite machine like um we we also recorded the actual machine as it was it was um filming but it it is um It's a switch over and both of us felt this and she was directing it and I was saying to her, I want you to come in in, inside my eye very slowly. So um, she moves from the outside of the eye. In fact, the camera moves in, you see a face but it's infrared so I've got black shiny skin and kind of a glowing eye. (laughs) So it's a bit, it's a real change Uh, and then it's sort of, A very low tone. And then we go to the pupil and then uh, inside the pupil and there's a real change of pace in the film. And eventually... And then it hits the retina Mm. Uh, and then the retina goes... I don't know whether anybody's had their retinas photographed and that orange sphere, that image that you get that's fissured with all the vascular network, Um, that's what we were getting on film. And then... I was talking to her and so that my eye was actually flicking around. So uh, you see that on the film oh. too and it changes from black and white to colour and then comes back. But we also started the film, I had a, a bok choy leaf on my eye.
1: I've seen that image, yes.
0: <laughs> In the middle of the ophthalmic unit I had a whole pile of bok choy that I'd grown in my backyard. <laughs> and... Um, and it was just a small one and I just had it cupped over my eye. And So the camera comes in, you see the bok choy leaf and then I just pull it off slowly. It focuses on all the vascular network in the leaf, you see. And then we pull it off and then you go inside the eye.
1: It's quite a, certainly from my experience, I find it quite an uncanny thing to go through those kinds of procedures and see the inside of your own body, to understand your own body as... A biological organism and it can be quite unsettling i think it's the same sense of the uncanny that you encounter when you see those sort of wax anatomical figures yeah
0: absolutely
1: but it feels like something that is uh quite core to some of the work that arose out of there the the ocular plant series and the shared reckonings work the idea of acknowledging that Biological systems, whether they be botanical or mm. animal or human, uh, are not so different. Yeah. Of, of drawing those parallels and making them clear in your work. Is that um, – th- and I, I think about um, some of your other works, like the Uncertain Facts series where the slippage between the plant and the animal world is, is – made very clear through material use, or, or not made very clear, actually made very opaque <laughs> between uh, through material use. What attracts you to this process of making visible these hidden structures or forging visual connections between different orders of being, of living organisms?
0: I, I do think it comes back to that. I promote uncertainty wherever I can. <laughs> and I think it's more about that, you know, than... Um, and. And and questioning where we gain our knowledge from. So all those juxtapositions of things that maybe people don't normally put together, that I put together, puts them in a state of questioning. Mm. Uh, it could be any subject, but, but I'm so fascinated with those juxtapositions of different species um, and different kind of natural forms that... that places us so close to that subject of what are we? I mean, how on earth do we begin to understand all that stuff? The human body is so complex. And how do you fit in all that information in in your brain, you know? (laughs) I remember there was one anatomy class that Ian Gibbons was standing there with a human brain in his hand and and he had a chopstick for a pointer... And he was saying, this is the area of the brain that I'm using to point my chopstick to this part of the brain. And I just went, oh, my God. (laughs) And that's the kind of feeling that I like to instill in my my audience (laughs) for my work. I love that. You know, when you're just sort of struck by how does that work? That's such a conundrum.
1: Well, they are works and, and that experience is something that makes us think about our bodies in a different way or become aware of them,
0: yeah.
1: I think. But I want to return to the, that series, the Uncertain Facts series, because I'm really interested in talking about the material versatility in your practice. On the one hand, it seems that you're capable of spending years mastering certain techniques, with the netsuke carving, to travel to Japan to learn from living tr- national treasures. While on the other, you've recently been working with thermoplastics and photoluminescent pigments, which we don't—I certainly was not aware of that sort of evolution of those material developments in your practice. Um, what is your approach to engaging with a new material? Are there certain skills or strategies that can translate across different materials?
0: Uh, yeah, look, I had the most fantastic upbringing in terms of my arts practice um, where I, I trained as a, in secondary art education. So I hold a Bachelor of Education in the arts. Um, and it was an incredible course because at that time we were really encouraged to translate an idea um, through many different mediums. The same idea and see what happened with each change, you know, with, with each approach, uh, with each batch of new techniques and properties of material. How did it affect the concept? You know, how did it transport the idea? How did it hold the idea? And um, it was an incredibly interesting way to learn um, arts practice. And... Uh, I think it's something that permeates my work today, so i'm I'm most interested in the idea, but I'm so interested in how um, the material may support that idea or and how I can like for instance, I remember I had a an international show booked and a very short deadline to do it, a solo exhibition. <laughs> And I thought, why don't I just try a completely different material with a completely new set of techniques? Oh, I do that a lot. It's not I...
1: like learning without a nest. <sighs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: um, yes, I, sometimes I wish I wasn't quite like that. But anyway, um, it's exciting being on the edge. <laughs> and so I, I had been carving muscles out of English lime wood and using shuniku, the Japanese ink, for the colouring. And um, I'd learnt that in Netsuke carving, and it was a hairline technique that I translated mm. into much larger scale. And um, I thought, how can I translate that sensibility of a muscle moving in another material, you know? And I found myself with at the hobby shop which I love the hobby shop, I love Bunnings in the hobby shop because there's all those materials and tools and stuff that I can just go, maybe I could try that. And um, so I bought some hard plastic tube from the hobby shop, uh, lots of different um, diameters of that. And I started, um, I knew that I'd wanted to change it because I'd been working with a reductive mm. technique, reducing, taking away all the time. I wondered if there was a way that I could actually, you know, do the opposite and build a form, construct a form differently. And I was looking at glass blowing techniques. And so what I ended up doing was sealing the end of the plastic tube and then painting it red, um, heating it and blowing it and where the heat... So i heating it with a hot air gun. Mm. Where the heat had um, uh, softened the plastic, when, when I blew it, it expanded. And so that was the first thing I thought, that's interesting. And, and what happened was, where the tube expanded, the paint split on the surface like a muscle. Mm. striations, And I thought... That's exactly what I want. <laughs> How can I make it sort of be like a muscle, like a a pulse? And so I had some heat shrink from that you buy the the electricians. That they, you know, you, you, I don't know if you know that material. It's like a soft plastic tube, and when you um, put wires inside it and run a heat gun on it, it'll shrink to hold the wires. So I had this material that was soft, so I cut it into, like, rubber bands, slid it over the hard plastic tube, and I knew that if I put the heat on the hard plastic tube and blew it, that would expand at the same time as the heat shrink- shrinking the tube. So what happened was I got these big striated muscles, you know, and I made neck pieces and all sorts of things happen. <laughs> Just in time for the show
1: <laughs> just <laughs> there seems like a lovely parallel there of material experimentation which seems almost scientific in, it, in its in its approach or
0: yeah, it is pretty scientific uh, you know I can say that now. I used to think that scientists were incredibly ordered you know, very as you say they follow a hypothesis and and they do, and they very strict with their experimentation and their recording and documenting and you know. But but they um, are fueled by uncertainty, you know. And the other thing that I learnt from them was um, if something goes terribly wrong, just do it again. Don't worry about it. Just do it again, you know. <laughs> if you fail, that's okay. You've learnt heaps. Try again the next day.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's really valuable advice to to give people thinking about that kind of material experimentation or varying in their practice. Um, The work that you were doing at the State Herbarium, I think, feels to me like a really nice kind of full circle, having looked at those wax anatomical models to moving to that collection at the Botanic Gardens of all those wax fruit and, mm-hmm. and, and fungi specimens that are there. What did you draw from that experience at the, at the Botanic Garden?
0: Well, you know, I, I love those models um, and they were kind of embedded from years ago but I didn't actually study them this time. I, I ran the, a parallel residency so I was, I was still at the ophthalmic um, imaging clinic doing all sorts of interesting work there. And at the same time, um, wanting to understand more about how plants took in light. Um, so that was my impetus at the Botanic Gardens and the State Herbarium, mm-hmm. was to learn from many different points of view. Because within those disciplines, even with you know in the ophthalmic departments, it's not just an ophthalmic photographer. It's someone who works with retinas or um, cataracts, or there's so many different ways of looking at the eye. And just the same in the plant world. Mm-hmm. In, uh, there's so many different ways of approaching plants and thinking about plants, um, from the economic botany side right through to, you know, a cellular level on how things, on algae, for instance. So um, when I was at the botanic gardens and the herbarium, it was more about finding the people, again, there that I could begin a relationship with in terms of looking at their subject matter from the point of view of not only a scientific uh, direction but maybe a poetic one or maybe in connection with the body. You know, that was my subject matter, but could I engage them in in that kind of thinking? So they started to think about, okay, well, how how do plants actually function with light? You know, how... I had to learn that too, mm. and I you know learned this much, <laughs> but um, through through their passion, and you know so many of those people are incredibly passionate about the subject matter, that's where I learned the most. It's like I remember walking through the gardens with one of the gardeners there, um, one of the horticulturists, and he 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 said, "Look, I'm going to walk you through my area of the garden that I'm responsible for." and uh, i said sure we've got you know we've got months and luckily we had months because he couldn't walk and talk at the same time so <laughs> it was a very slow walk but he'd walk through saying i can feel these plants photosynthesize you know and we got to that point of the conversation you know where it was it was kind of like you could almost hear them photosynthesize <laughs> with him describing the process to me as we were walking along yeah. um so that that's the kind of thing that i was interested in there uh that crossover between, you know, the eyes taking light and, um, and turning light into thought because basically that's what happens. Mm. It hits the retina, and it goes, you know, processes down the optic nerve into about six different areas of your brain to inform your knowledge of what you've seen, mm. to inform perception, you know. So imagine what plants do with light, you know. And... <laughs> Literally mind-blowing. Um, and so that, that, um, that crossover was just fantastic to do those two residencies at the same time and then bring that back to the studio and, and be completely confused about how I was going to translate that because then that pandemic... It, bushfires were raging through Australia. This is 2019. And the pandemic hit. And I thought, oh, what a perfect time to be locked down in my studio translating all that stuff.
1: But now you're out of your studio and, and doing a residency <laughs> at Carrick Hill and it looks like you're engaging very strongly with the gardens there as well but also with the historical collection. Yeah, it's like about, about, about
0: five different residencies in what's up there. Um, not the easiest um, project I've ever done but a really fascinating one. Uh, they seem to be getting more and more challenging, these projects, because I never know really... You know, I start off with a, an idea that's the hook and, uh, you know, the reason for being and then write an application around that um, because they have to be funded somehow, you know. <laughs> um, and, then, and and I use that as a touchstone, you know. I think if anybody's thinking about doing this line of business in the arts, it, it really is important, I think, to, to pick up the threads of your practice through a project, not just go, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll study, you know, fencing today and do a project about that that has no relationship whatsoever. Um, make it relevant. It has to be relevant. And, um, and then write a grant application or two or six or eight, as I did. And um, <coughs> I, I do come back to that application regularly, you know, as a touchstone. What did I say I was going to do? What were my boundaries? because you can just go way too far out. It's a bit like doing a PhD every time. You've got to bring yourself back in. What was my question? You know, My question here was what an amazing relationship is it, there is between a house that is in an English manor, built in the style of an English manor house, full of the most incredible um, art... Mm that these people lived with every day by choice and enjoyed it very much, and and artists as well who, you know, came and went, and a very cultivated English garden close to the house that took an immeasurable amount of landscaping to shape and an immeasurable amount of labour and cost now to keep up, bounded by this huge hedge, and then outside of that is another zone where it's... I call it crunchy land because <laughs> it's very dry. <laughs> At, you know, I've, I've actually recorded my footsteps going from the, the soft lawn to crunch, crunch, crunch. outside the hedge, crunchy land. Um, used to be a citrus orchard. And then there's this rim of um, remnant, and I love that term, remnant, native, grey box, grassy woodland. So... Um, The eucalyptus, um, what's it called? I can't remember the name of the tree, the species, but Macrocarpa, eucalyptus Macrocarpa, um, is so important. That little bit of land is what saves Hill from being subdivided because Mm. it's an endangered species. It's been saved three times from governments on both sides. Because of that remnant land, and so you know, I'm thinking, well us humans? We're kind of weird, aren't we? It used to be, you know, of course, it was um, it's unseated land, and then it was dairy farm, and and then it was this whole mix of a conundrum of of um, you know worship to the to to a land that's far away in the mm. northern hemisphere, very British. And European, all the plants are uh, European and English, and then this absolutely fascinating bushland, which uh, was in fact there the day before yesterday, <laughs> helping to get rid of the olive trees that are invading. Right. Uh, there. <laughs> so it's a real, it's an in- incredible place. It's so layered, and um, just sorting out the relationship about how we arrange and assemble nature, and how we can't. Keep on doing it.
1: Yeah, right. Well, it does seem, I mean, to carry that physical metaphor through, something like a, a transplant or a graft, graft, and then that crunchy zone like scar tissue around that. Yeah, uh, it is. That, yeah,
0: that's, that's a good site. analogy, actually. Yeah, if you think of it as a body, you know, there are bits of our body as we age <laughs> that we'd prefer to forget uh, and bits fall off. And, the crunchy <laughs> zone. <Yeah. laughs> it's a bit like that, the crunchy <laughs> zone. <laughs> yeah, what's your crunchy <laughs> zone? No, <I> <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but it, it is kind of fascinating that way. And, you know, look, I'm at the stage of this project where I've just done three months intensive research, looking at the archives, talking to all sorts of people who are connected with the place. Walking through the gardens, um, trying to understand what plants are there and the, the choices people that, uh, that have been made. I mean that place belongs to all of us actually. It was given to the people of South Australia. So what do we want? You know, it's got remnant native bush which is just so exquisitely beautiful. It's got deer that comes in. The kangaroos are always trying to get in the fences, and I keep on saying, all power to you, kangaroos. <laughs> Get in. And have you um, reached
1: that point of reflection in this residency yet? Have you taken well, the pause?
0: <laughs> I've taken lots of pauses necessarily, definitely. I, I ended up actually doing kind of half a week intensively up there and then half back in the studio, kind of looking through all my notes, um, looking through all my images. And now I'm at kind of the, the time where... You know, it's not ever an easy time where you bring all your research back and i pinned it all up and uh, looking at all the materials before me and what is going to be the most potent direction to take to represent this conundrum that's up there. There's a real metaphor for where we're at now. Look at the gardens that we choose to have, you know, around us uh, and how we bend nature to our needs all the time. Um, and what angle to take. And, and I'm just starting to see the light through the tunnel now. Wonderful. Thank goodness because it's exhausting. <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> um, Catherine's been a, a wonderful conversation but I think we still have a few more minutes. We might turn it over to yeah. some questions from our audience if anyone has anything that they'd like to ask. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tony would.
0: Uh, I'm fascinated with the image that's on the
1: screen now. That's from oh, So the first terrible. piece.
0: It's the first piece I've made for this project.
1: That's what I thought, because it came at the end of the miracle.
0: Can Um, you explain the concept behind the process? Yeah, I'll try. It's so fresh.
1: And maybe we'll just describe what we're looking at.
0: Okay, what you're looking at is um, there are three scapula from a from two dairy cows, and they're arranged in a triangular fashion. And um, the handle. Pardon? They're real scapulae. They're real. They're real. Um, and the the handle at uh, at the back here, and also this kind of spout, are ribs from a Western grey kangaroo. And they're found, and they're gifted. So the the um, so it's interesting because at this stage, like I hadn't made for several months uh, when I went back to the studio because I was absolutely ensconced up at Carrick Hill for all that time, and um, I thought, I need to get my hands on the work. I need to get back to making. And I've had these bones. I've got a big crate of... It's like a whole dairy cow. Um, And I've had them for well over 20 years. They were given to me by a friend who used to live on a dairy farm behind Paris Creek, actually, dairy. And, um, And I've had them there wanting to do something with them but never really finding the right opening, you know, and, and and a couple of weeks ago it kind of clicked. It like, oh, my God, yeah, okay, this is dairy land. This was dairy land, beast of burden, you know, and kangaroos are still, they're taking over the forest. <laughs> um, so it's, it's like an impossible milk jug. If you... So the actually, I've used three ribs in that. i uh, uh, the ends, the ends of two of them, and join them together like that. And then just use one by itself. And they're all they're um, dowled with uh, bamboo um, dowling. And the um, the scapula are held together actually by a polymer kind of. Mixture like a putty, a eatable putty, that is fabulous because you can. You have to work it obviously within a certain time, so I, you know, pushed it into the joints and smoothed it down, and then ground it back to put the texture of bone in, and then you can paint it, and you can, you know, you can drill it and do all sorts of things with it. So, it's it's an impossible milk jug. It's, it's, it's such a, a beautiful
1: form, and texturally, it is just delightful. So,
0: Courtesy of the dairy cow. Okay.
1: Well, yes, but you you captured and not altered it. It's just gorgeous.
0: Well, you know what I what I do love doing is I've actually have altered a little bit. Um, the edges were so um, corroded. I've puttied the edges, but um, I've it you can't tell. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I really love working. Perhaps I'm a conservator really at heart, you know. <laughs> I do love um, you kept the creating illusions. Um, structure of the, of the bone inside. Yes, and I had to recreate the, the um, porousness of the bone on yes. the edges, so I got a wire brush and I dashed the edges with that <laughs> and um, created the illusion that way. I do love creating illusions with the work, I really do
1: there seems to be a little bit of a tension between that ability to shift materials to create that illusion mm-hmm. and then the use of resonant materials, things that you've hung on to for years, like this box of, of dairy cow bones that you've had and, and preserved and kept, knowing and that you would that have to a use To me, they're for sacred
0: objects, really. They really are. I, I thought, wow, this, this cow, these cows have really paid a price, you know. How can I honour that and, and kind of reflect my feelings about Carrick Hill, in a way, um, and 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 that piece kind of says it. I I still ha- am not able to articulate it fully yet, but it will come. I usually write screeds of notes. I have written notes after the, the fact of making to see what comes up, um, and so the the things I've told you are uh, how I've been thinking o- about it lately. But I already have a spot for it in the house. I'm going to be. <laughs> I'm going to be. Um, showing this work throughout the house, which will be fabulous fun. They're very conservative up there, but I think um, it'll be interesting. There's a 16th century oak table uh, where the main staircase comes down and it's really thick and heavy. I think this will be perfect on, on mm. that table.
1: It sounds very exciting, Catherine. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I'm afraid that we're going to have to leave it there. Even if there are any more questions, I think there's a history class coming in here imminently. So if you could please join me in thanking Catherine.